Welcome to Sound Practice, the business podcast for physicians and healthcare leaders, hosted by Mike Sakopoulos and produced by the American Association for Physician Leadership. Recent events have called greater attention to racial and ethnic disparities in healthcare. Whether it is infant mortality numbers or vaccine hesitancy, we have all seen the unsettling reports. We will explore this important patient safety topic today with a national healthcare leader and key executive with the Joint Commission. This is a special episode of Sound Practice. So let's begin. Dr. Anna Pujols-McKee is the Executive Vice President and Chief Medical Officer, Chief Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Officer of the Joint Commission. In this role, Dr. McKee represents the Joint Commission Enterprise as she focuses on and develops policies and strategies for promoting patient safety and quality improvement in healthcare and leads the Joint Commission Enterprise in meeting its goals of increasing diversity and inclusivity. Dr. McKee, thank you so much for joining me on Sound Practice. A pleasure to join you. Thank you for inviting me. Dr. McKee, you have a large portfolio of duties for the Joint Commission. Could you tell me how this plays out on a day-to-day basis? Sure. It's a a little complicated. Uh, The Joint Commission really has been transforming itself to become and is an expert in performance improvement and a patient safety and has patient safety expertise. Um, Accreditation, yes, is the core business, which is process of standardizing processes and policies, but the aim and the end game is quality improvement and safety. And in that vein, my role is to oversee a group of experts, and there is no other unit like this in the world, of clinicians who are masters prepared plus a human factors engineer who are totally devoted to event investigation. They do root cause analysis on over 900 events every year. That's one of my areas. And the other area that I lead the Joint Commission is in physician engagement. We know that we've lost the attention of the physicians, especially the physician leaders, that we are viewed as a Um, heavy regulator and little value is seen to what the Joint Commission is trying to achieve. Changing that narrative has been my work for now a good 10 years in educating and working with physicians, giving them the communication and the resources that see us more as a partner with expertise that they can really rely on. Excellent. Well, you've had a very interesting and impressive path to your current position. Could you please tell us a bit about your career and the steps which led you to the Joint Commission? Sure. I've always had my eyes on leadership and leadership being the avenue to making change and improving healthcare. Um, My focus started very early in my career after my residency. I did do some work as an affiliate member of the Robert Wood Johnson fellowship program to get some basic fundamental skills, accounting, healthcare administration, et cetera. Beyond that, most of my training has been on the spot. I became the medical director for the Philadelphia uh, Public Health Department's eighth 
ambulatory facilities. And that gave me a huge opportunity to really build on leadership, building trust, and really focusing my work around quality. I then became the um, chief medical officer for Presbyterian. There's some in intermediate steps that I won't go into, but um, there at Penn Presbyterian, part of uh, Penn Medicine, I led the organization as their first chief medical officer. While I was doing that, I was tapped by the governor of Pennsylvania to sit as the chair of the Pennsylvania Patient Safety Authority. And that gave me better lens, better perspective um, to really sharpen my skills, both in leadership and in understanding patient safety. Um, now at the Joint Commission, again, a completely different perspective. Um, it, it's all come together for me personally. Fascinating. I'd like to shift now, talk a little bit about uh, population health. And in, in studying population health, many of us already understood that health disparities in the, in the U.S. certainly exist. But the recent experience of COVID-19 pandemic uh, has exposed the concept of health disparities in a way that is now front page news. Do you see any encouraging news on this front? Are you aware of any particular initiatives that are encouraging? I am encouraged. Um, first of all, disparities in healthcare are one of the most, most studied patient safety concerns that we have in this country. More than 50 years of data, more PhDs have been built on this topic. It's a shame that we've done so little. I do think that with the focus on justice and the pandemic's impact on uh, minority groups, has really helped organizations begin to look at it and accept it as their responsibility as an organization that provides safe care. You can't provide safe care if your women of color die twice at the rate of white women when they're having babies. So I do think that all of these forces are coming together to help us understand that we've got to use our patient safety and quality improvement infrastructure to address these concerns. And the concerns shouldn't just stay within that infrastructure. They should be part of the mission and the vision of the organization. They should tie up to the strategic plan of the organization as well. Where do you think, because I agree, this is, this is a, a known problem, been very well studied. Where's been the disconnect between academic knowledge and, and practical reality or implementation of, of things that we, we know and we have studied for so long? I think privilege plays a role in this and um, the bias that we all bring to work. And look, let's face it, we were all, at, folks my age, <laughs> were all trained in most likely a segregated healthcare environment. I trained in an organization where the white patients will, would be treated in one place and the patients of color were in the old building. It's hardwired. Uh, we've been talking about disparities, but it's become acceptable. The complacency is not just complacency, it's not my problem. And what we're trying to get is ownership of this problem. Um, organizations who do risk contracting, are losing financially if they have high disparities in their outcomes. 
uh, accountable care, population health, new forms of payment give the financial uh, uh, reason why organizations should be focusing on this. It's not just an ethical problem. It is a huge source of financial uh, and societal burden to our society and to our organization. So uh, on multiple levels, really organizations really need to be looking at this. And you, you bring up your medical education and I'm interested to see what you think is being done with medical education today. Are problems of healthcare dis, uh, disparities and, and race being taught in a way that you think is effective for medical students and residents? Well, I think that there's just the beginning of exploring how to educate and deal with implicit bias and through bias training with residents and medical students and fellows. Um, this is a big experiment. How to do it, no one really knows. Doing nothing, we all know is wrong. And so uh, we, we are beginning to see organizations um, begin to provide this training to residents and, and enter into a dialogue around race. Um, I really am impressed with the AMA's position that they've recently stated and the documents that they made and part of their mission. And so we do see some of these national organizations owning the problem and moving forward with it. That's encouraging. I'd like to, to shift focus now from physicians in, in medical education to, to patients. And let's talk about a topic that I think is on everyone's mind, which is uh, vaccinations. Uh, depending on the report you read, we have a crisis with vaccine hesitancy and trust in, in medicine, but we also have a situation of difficulty with vaccine access in certain communities. For example, the vaccine may be available, but if you have to take time off of work or get child care to, to go get your, your jab, as the, as the Brits would say, um, you could risk being, being fired or, or have uh, bad, bad effects uh, from, from that, uh, that choice. Could you give us your opinion and, and take on where we are with vaccine hesitancy? So, I, I, and I think the word vaccine hesitancy, I put it in quotes because there's also uh, the vaccine impediments that are part of the problem. And these impediments have been well identified. And the fact that we haven't been able to um, create solutions that are reasonable for people who have very restrictive, restrictive work environments um, is sort of a shame on us. Um, but I also think that the hesitancy umbrella includes a lot of individuals who are approached in a way where the outcome is intended to be, you know, don't get the vaccine. In other words, if a physician approaches a patient and says, I know you folks don't like vaccines, but well, you have given that person the answer. And we do know that the way the, uh, the consent uh, the informed consent that is being given is, is really, it's on the clinician's side. And I do believe that there's a lot of opportunity for improvement to give the person the foundation of making an informed decision 
Um, and, and by the way, informed consent is not a problem just with vaccine. It is a problem across <laughs> all procedural areas uh, in, in healthcare. Um, but I, I do think it's the responsibility of the clinician to do the best job they can possibly do to inform the patient uh, properly. This sounds like informed consent should not be a one-size-fits-all. Is that exactly. correct? Exactly. Exactly. And in, and in some situations, you know, uh, literacy is an issue. So language is an uh, language proficiency is an issue. All of those things need to be taken into consideration as part of the informed consent. And is this something that the Joint Commission uh, looks at as part of accreditation? We have quite a bit of standards uh, describing patient rights. They're not specific, but um, one of the kudos that the Joint Commission, um, you know, I give to the Joint Commission is that in the late 80s, they began to, and probably even before that, to delineate patient rights, which didn't exist before. But those rights say, yes, I, I have the right to be informed on all aspects of my care. And so uh, it's not specific to, to the vaccination, but it applies to all uh, procedural or treatments that a patient is going to get. Dr. McKee, our, our audience today is made up of physicians, physician leaders, healthcare executives. This is a podcast of the American Association for Physician Leadership. And you certainly are a tremendous leader in the, in the medical community. From your own leadership journey, could you describe two or three events or opportunities that have shaped you as a physician leader? Sure, and thank you for that compliment. Um, I like to see myself as a servant leader. Uh, I am serving the people I lead, and I lead with that in mind. Um, I think one of the most interesting attributes that a leader needs to have is courage. Um, it's not always easy to stand up for what's right. Um, I've seen great leaders come to that point where they needed the courage and they stopped short. And so my, my advice to everybody is it's not for the faint hearted. There are um, times when, you know, uh, it, it, it's easier to retreat uh, than to move forward and in a thoughtful way, and in a professional way. Uh, but I think courage is something that we speak very little of, but it is so important in leadership. The other aspect of what I believe in, is important to leadership is to build trust with the people that you are leading. And that, that takes some time, and you could ruin it all one day by making a mistake. Uh, you gotta work on it every day, and, and check it, you know, do check-ins every now and then and make sure you're, you're where you are. Um, people tend to work best with those they trust. Well said. Can you tell us what's new at the, the Joint Commission or any kind of initiatives or things that the audience may be um, unaware of that they should be aware of? Sure. I'm excited about the way we have transformed our 
dialogue with the organizations from findings to the identification of risk within your organization. And we have some tools to do that. It's called the Safer Dashboard, where every observation that is identified in an organization is put on this risk matrix to give you a visual of how serious it is and how widespread it is so that you can actually prioritize and focus your attention based on the level of risk. This, these dashboards are available for organizations and now we have them available for health systems to actually integrate all of their data across all of their organizations and see what patterns and trends they're having across their system that they can then focus their attention to those. The other things that I think is uh, really helpful for us is that we are, we are doing a digital transformation of the Joint Commission. So we have always been working on the consistency and the accuracy of the survey. So that if we go in hospital A, we survey it the same way in hospital B. And now we have tools using artificial intelligence that the surveyors are able to identify something and not have to rely on their brains and the 600 elements of performance or requirements that we have, but actually begin to enter it into their computers and it guides them to the most likely accurate place that that needs to be cited. And that's the way we've been increasing the consistency among our surveyors. We also are using Power BI, which is a data collection tool that lets us calculate for every surveyor, and there's 500 of them, so there's a lot, how consistent they are and who's an outlier in scoring any particular uh, standard. Someone who doesn't score enough, someone who scores excessively, and we customize the training to that individual using that data analysis. So we've gotten quite further along in terms of the sophistication of the analysis that we do. And uh, we are still in that transformation, more to come. Well, it, it sounds like you have some very powerful tools to use. Um, and I'm, I'm interested in the, in the dashboard. If you have found certain types of risk, maybe something was more or less risky than people had originally thought, but when it was quantified if there was a surprise. Anything come out uh, and sure. seem, seem odd from that? Well, before you know, without this matrix, um, a penetration is a hole in the wall, and that happens quite frequently in hospitals. Gurneys get bashed in, equipment hits the wall, et cetera. And in our old way, we would just say you have penetrations in your wall. And it, the, but the truth of the matter is that that penetration brings different risks depending on where you find it. So a penetration, the reason why it's a problem is that it allows fire to go from one area to another. So it's actually a fire prevention strategy of eliminating these penetrations. A, a penetration in the HR department where everyone is athletic and jogs every morning is much less riskier than in the intensive care unit where patients are on ventilators and are in restraints perhaps. Now we have the ability to tell the organization, you have two pen penetrations here, two holes in the walls, but they are different. And you focus first on your ICU issues. 
And lastly, you focus in your HR, your administrative building. That's the way the dialogue has, I think, improved the appreciation that the survey really is a risk assessment. And hopefully we're giving more and more meaningful information to organization leaders to improve in all of these areas that are identified. Well, it's certainly valuable information. Dr. McKee, I could talk to you all afternoon. This is uh, this is fascinating, but I agreed up front to keep uh, our, our time together uh, within certain parameters, and I'm, I'm going to honor that because I know you have uh, lots of important work to do. Thank you so much for joining me on Sound Practice today. It was a pleasure. It was my pleasure and honor to speak with Dr. Anna Pujols-McKee. Many thanks to Dr. McKee for her time and wise thoughts. My thanks also to the American Association for Physician Leadership for making sound practice possible. Please join me next time for another new episode of Sound Practice. You've been listening to Sound Practice, the business podcast for physicians and healthcare leaders. Check out the show notes for this episode at soundpracticepodcast.com. If you have any suggestions for future episodes, we'd love to hear them. Email us at info at soundpracticepodcast.com. Subscribe to Sound Practice wherever you listen to podcasts so you can automatically receive our episodes. And please rate us and comment on the podcast in iTunes and Google Play. Sound Practice is presented and produced by the team at American Association for Physician Leadership. We are the world's premier organization for all aspects of physician leadership in every sector of healthcare. Learn more at physicianleaders.org. Man and Robin. Red Bull Kapow.